0: We are in week two of a series diving into the book of Romans. And so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it or an app or whatever you use uh, to Romans chapter 8. My wife and I have lived here in Tallahassee for, well, we're actually celebrating our anniversary right now because we moved here right about 11 years ago in 2012. And it was a little bit nerve-wracking to move here, to be perfectly honest. We moved here so that I could do my doctoral studies at FSU, and we came here knowing nobody. It was a new place for us, we had no uh, contacts, and uh, frankly, getting involved with a doctoral program in a state university was a little intimidating as well. In fact, what scared me the most was this whole thing called a dissertation this whole idea that I had to write this document that was gonna be hundreds and hundreds of pages long was incredibly intimidating to me. So imagine my surprise when I get here and I learn about a new program called the Three Minute Thesis Competition. The Three Minute Thesis Competition is designed to take all of your research, all of the work that you're putting into a dissertation, and to summarize it in three minutes or less. In fact, you had to summarize it in three minutes or less. If you didn't, you were disqualified from the program. And so, not from the doctoral studies program, just a little competition that they had there. Okay? And so this idea that I had to reduce everything I was working on to such a small thing was a little intimidating, but a good opportunity to say something very succinctly. I was thinking about that this week because I think we have the opposite problem when we approach the gospel. We've gotten really good at stating the gospel succinctly. In fact, one of the glories, one of the manifold glories of the gospel is that we can say the good news of Jesus simply enough that a child can understand it. Chances are, if you've learned one of these methods, whether we're talking about the four spiritual laws or the Romans road, both the regular road and the express road, maybe you've learned uh, the E.E. hand that you can say, which is five fingers, the ABCs of the gospel. Here at Wildwood, we use something known as the it alls, that God made it all. We lost it all. Christ did it all so that we get it all. It's a wonderful thing to do to say that the gospel can be simply understood. But when we try to simply understand the gospel, we run the risk of missing the depth, of missing the nuance of the gospel. We're diving into Romans 8, and one of the reasons we're going to do this is because it helps us understand the nuance and the depth of the gospel. In fact, the entirety of the book of Romans is this extended discourse on the nature of salvation that Jesus brings. It's describing the gospel for us, not in a three-minute thesis version, but in a dissertation version. As a result, when you're reading through the book of Romans, it can become a little bit intimidating because it gets very nuanced. It gets very wordy. In fact, this entire series is designed to be a more intellectually driven, theological, and yes, heady series. But it's worth it. It's worth it to get into the nuances of the gospel. It's like taking a diamond or that pearl of great price and turning it ever so slightly and examining all the various facets of it so that we can understand the gospel so much better in our lives. Another thing that David noted during our first week last week was that this chapter, Romans 8, is full of truths and facts and doesn't have a lot to say in terms of imperatives. Calls to action. But that's important because we have to get our minds right before we can live it out. We need to adjust our thinking before we can properly understand what it means for us in our day-to-day actions. David also said last week that he challenged us to try and memorize the entire book of Romans chapter 8. Now, you might have heard that and said, no, that's not for me. That's really long. Do you see how many verses are in this? There's there's 39 verses in this. That's too long. Uh, But I'd imagine that if you start picking through it, you'll realize that actually quite a bit of it may be at least familiar to you. Individual verses that stand out. I'll also tell you how I personally memorize is by writing things out on note cards. One or two verses per note card. By writing it out, it already gets it into my brain, and then you just keep on repeating it over and over. So let me challenge you as well. If you can memorize Romans chapter 8 over the course of this series throughout July and August. Last week, once again, Pastor David started us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This glorious new that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. This verse is an ultimate fulfillment of what the Israelites were singing about in Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 22 says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It is because of Jesus that there is no condemnation. See, the Israelites might have been singing about it, but only those who are in Christ, Christ can realize it fully. It's because of Jesus that we can say, as it says later in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also is interceding for us. See, the only way salvation happens is because of Jesus. We've tried it a number of different ways, and it does not work. But because of Jesus, we can have salvation. In fact, the first five chapters of Romans make it clear that the law could not accomplish this for us. I love what this says, to run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands, but better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. This week, we continue our study, diving into verses 5 through eight, Out of respect for the word of God, if you would stand with us as we read these verses together. In fact, I want to start by picking up in verse 4, the end of verse 4, where it says, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Would you pray with me? Father, these are your words and they are nuanced and they are complicated, but you have provided them for us. So I pray that you would open our ears to understand more of what you have to say through them and be glorified even in the process. We pray this to you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage for today is the first part of a parenthetical statement, a rabbit hole, if you will. Verses 5 through 11 are setting up this antithesis between the flesh and the spirit. In fact, in typical Pauline style, this is actually a parenthetical statement inside of a parenthetical statement, a rabbit hole inside of a rabbit hole. Verses 2 through 17 is all designed to explain this glorious news that is proclaimed in verse 1, that there is no condemnation, but we need to talk about the flesh first before we get into the spirit, because that's what I've been assigned to do. And so we're going to get into that. We have three things to pay attention to in the passage this morning. First of all, the people. Next, the problem. And then we will conclude with the plea. Fair warning here. To get at the actual meaning of the passage, what's going on here, we have to get into the original language a little bit. Now, we are blessed when it's an overabundance of English translations that help us understand what the text is saying. But the difference between reading it in a translation and the original language is akin to watching something on an old, grainy, black-and-white television compared to watching something on a 4K or 6K, I don't know, whatever K we're at by now. The the televisions that are amazingly clear and crisp. It gives nuance. It gives much better picture. So, yeah, we're going to get a little bit into the Greek today. I had a seminary professor that gave uh, some good advice about this. He said uh, the the original languages are like underwear. People want to know that you have it. They just never want to see it. Um, I'm only bringing it up because it's going to be helpful for us. Okay? So just stick with me there, and we'll see how we can do all right, let's get into it. First of all, let's look at the people. Right off the bat, we have an interpretive issue here. In verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh. Who are we talking about? That's an important question, but let, let's define our terms first. He, he says flesh. The word flesh actually shows up five separate times in our passage, and when used in the Bible, it's used in a lot of different ways. It may actually be talking about, well, Flesh. It may actually be talking about the physical bodies that we have. But sometimes it's talking about a physical totality of us that is dominated by sin. To such a degree that wherever flesh is, sin is present. And no good thing can live in this flesh. It's our creatureliness, our sinfulness, our defective understanding of God's saving acts and plan of election. It's this bearer of sinful feelings. Now, it's important to note right off the bat that Paul is using this dichotomy of sin versus spirit, and he's not talking about it in terms of good versus evil or sin versus righteousness. Because the fact is, there are a lot of people who are living in the flesh who look good to us. They may be those upstanding citizens who keep their lawns mowed and make sure everything is prim and proper. They're the kind of people who you'll let them watch your dog while you go on vacation because you know he'll be fine when you get back. But it's possible still to be living in the flesh. The common theme here is pursuing salvation our own way, separate from God, either by following the law and thinking you are maintaining it, Or by flouting the law. And so I go back to our question is that us? When Paul says those who live according to the flesh, is he talking about us here? I bring this up because we have to clarify so that we can understand the rest of the passage. And the fact is, Christian theologians have actually disagreed upon this. Throughout the centuries, there are some who say, yep, this is us, and there are others who say, no, this is who we once were, but that's no longer us. Those who say it's no longer us point to, well, the book-ended passages here. I mean, we just read it, didn't we? At the end of verse 4, it says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Therefore, this is not us, right? Right? Well, there are others who argue that, no, this actually is still us. Christians, new Christians who have not progressed very far in their sanctification, still living out the things of the flesh. For me, one of the ways forward as I was doing my study is to pay attention to one particular word in the original Greek for namo. It's the word that is translated in your Bibles perhaps as... Uh, has your minds set on. And that's a common way to translate it. The ESV, the NIV, NASB uses that to translate it. But it can be misread to say, have your mind set on. We can think about that as more being preoccupied with something. It may be better to understand it as a fleshly way of thinking or a worldview or a mindset. One of my favorite Bible translations is known as a New English translation. Here's how it uh, translates verse 5. It says, For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. See, what Paul is talking about here is how we see the world. Do we see the world the way that unbelievers do? Or, as Christians, do we see the world differently? The fact is, our worldview does not magically transform at the point of conversion. We still have a number of the same issues that we struggled with after we accept the good news of Jesus. And the fact is, we may continue to do so for the rest of our lives. We have to look at our passage this morning not describing a past reality for Christians, but a continuing reality that we will still wrestle with. If that's true, that puts into stark reality how important the warning we have in verse 6 through 8. So let's turn to that. What is the problem? Well, Paul is strong here. To set the mind on the flesh is death, he says in verse 6. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mindset of the flesh, the outlook of the flesh, a worldview of the flesh leads to death. This was our problem before, and as Christians, it's still our problem. Now, we really aren't saying anything new here. If you pay attention at all to the narrative throughout Scripture, you see that there are constantly and consistently two paths. There is a path of life and a path of death. There is a good way to go and a bad way to go. If you were with us while we were studying the wisdom uh, literature with uh, the Proverbs and Psalms over the last year, we talked about this path of wisdom and a path of foolishness. This always exists, and what Paul is telling us here is that for the Christian, the destructive power of sin has not changed. Satan still seeks to deceive us, and he does so by diminishing and downplaying and dismissing the deleterious effects of sin. And so Paul reminds the Christian, setting the mind on fleshly things is death. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. It does not please God. God, if Paul is feeling repetitious here, it's because he is. He's saying the same thing in a number of different ways and purposefully so. People who are much smarter than me refer to this as a homoyo homoyo-taluton. Isn't that a fun word? Homoyo Homoiotaluton. And what this means is repeating similar sounds to drive memory. Paul is essentially creating an earworm here. Not that weird earworm from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, but like just something that sticks in your brain. You, you know this. You can have certain words that are put together, whether it's rhyming or even similar words, and they stick there. In World War II, they used the phrase, loose lips sink ships. It just sticks there, Right? Or when I mention bounty paper towels, probably, probably all of you know them as the quicker picker upper. It just sticks in your head, right? Well, that's exactly what he's doing here. He's trying to make it unforgettable. Which, by the way, the Nat King Cole song, Unforgettable, is also in earworm. Yeah, that's why, darling, it's incredible that someone so unforgettable can think that, I'm. For- yeah, exactly. It sticks in your head. Paul is trying to get this to stick in your brain, and he's saying the way of the flesh is death. He's repeating this to emphasize something that doesn't change when you become a Christian. The way of the flesh is still the way of death. Now, let's be abundantly clear here. This is different for the Christian in two very important ways. Number one, what we mean by death. Remember, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Death does not mean eternal punishment for the believer. But what does it mean? A fourth century church father named Gregory of Nyssa wrote, As long as the flesh lives, it is not possible for the pleasing and perfect will of God to be done expeditiously in the life of the believer. We don't die, but we also don't fulfill what God truly wants. For us. But there's one more very important distinction for us as Christians. We have the possibility of doing better, we have the possibility of overcoming the flesh in our lives. For the believer, this is not possible. Now, this is something that was actually wrestled with in church history for quite a while. Um, And in the fourth century, it came to a head where a guy by the name of St. Augustine developed something that's now known as the four states of man to help us understand this progression in the life of, well, humanity writ large. At the beginning, it started talking about it as before the fall for Adam, and Eve, they were able to sin, but there's a possibility they were able not to sin. I I put the Latin up there just in case anyone wants to read it in Latin. Anyone? It's there. Just Okay. After the fall, after the fall, after everyone uh, is stuck in sin, notice we are not able not to sin. It is impossible for us to overcome our sin nature. But then, After regeneration, after Jesus works in us, then there is a possibility. What is that possibility? Well, we're still able to sin. We still sin after we are saved, but there's a possibility, an ability, perhaps maybe not to sin. It's only in heaven that we will be unable to sin, truly done with all of this. For the Christian, there is the possibility of overcoming. I'm not preaching perfection here. I don't believe that it's possible to be perfect. But we can overcome. We do have the possibility of overcoming. Because this passage is for us and because the flesh is death, what is Paul trying to tell us here? Remember, there is no action point here or in this section or chapter But knowing is half the battle G.I. Joe taught us in the 1980s, and just me? Anyone else? Okay, good. All right. And so the call here, the plea that he's making here is strong. Because this passage has us in mind and the warning is so stark, the call for us is this. Christian, recognize and resist the flesh in your lives. Recognize and resist the fleshly mindset. We need to recognize our flesh, even and especially when we have been saved. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been reading through the book, Reactivity by Paul David Tripp. It's one of our summer book clubs here, and, and he put it so well, so I want to read what he says about this. He says, We have been declared perfectly righteous because of the righteous life and acceptable sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We positionally stand before God as righteous, but we are not actually perfectly righteous. We are in the process of becoming actually righteous. By the power of God's sanctifying grace, we are all in process. This means that sin still remains with its moral impurity, its tendency to rebel. We don't always think in godly ways. We don't always desire what God desires for us. Our motives are often a mix of what is pure and what is impure. We are still capable of pride, hatred, greed. There are moments when sin seems more attractive to us than obedience. We suffer from pockets of spiritual blindness, the inaccuracy of self-understanding that results. This means the war for the rulership of our hearts still goes on. The, The problem is that I think sometimes we forget this. We we fail to recognize that there are still issues in our lives that need to be overcome. And my argument is that at Christians, we should be the best at this. Our Christianity is founded on a simple truth that we couldn't do it on our own. Why do we think we could do it on our own after salvation? We can't. We have to recognize the fact that this fleshly mindset can still exist in our lives. We don't have time to dive deeply into this, but I want to point you to a parallel passage that goes with Romans 8 here, talking about this antithesis between flesh and spirit. It's over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, and I'm pointing that out because it describes the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. It's famous for those fruit of the Spirit, but we need to pay attention to how it describes the flesh as well. I just want to read three verses from it because it's describing the outworkings of the flesh. So this is Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's interesting to me to note how Paul is mixing the things that we would consider beyond the pale... And things we would never ever do, perhaps, with issues that can be daily struggles for us, like jealousy or envy or anger. The fact is, they deserve to be all lumped together. All of them are works of the flesh. I think one of the most underappreciated virtues of the Christian life is humility. When we truly understand our current state, and when we truly understand the gospel, we would freely admit that we have not yet arrived, (laughs) that there is more work to do, that sin can still mess us up. If you don't believe that, as Paul says, God will reveal that to you too. There is still more work to do. We need to recognize the flesh in our lives, but we also need to resist the flesh in our lives. See, the, the division here is stark. Those who allow the direction of their lives to be determined by the flesh are actually taking the flesh's side in the conflict between the Spirit of God and the flesh. We must resist this well, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to get ahead of ourselves just a little bit in the book of Romans. He spends 11 chapters laying out all of these uh, ideas of things that we need to know, but then you get to chapter 12, and right off the bat, he gives us an answer. Chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now listen to this. Do not be conformed to this world, to a fleshly mindset, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect Notice what is being said here. In our sinful state, we were being conformed to this world. But we're in a new reality now. In this new reality, we can take captive anything that stands against God and his way. See, even though the old nature never gives up and never backs off and never concedes defeat, we can live with confident assurance that our God is stronger. The question for us is, to whom will we yield control? Are we going to allow the flesh to still control us? Or are we going to go in a different direction? Our new lives as believers can be described as this renunciation of walking or living according to the flesh. Our own statement of the belief, statement of belief, the Westminster Confession of Faith refers to our new life as believers as a continual and irreconcilable war, a constant battle against the flesh. I haven't talked about something that's very important and the reason why I haven't is because it's coming in verse 9. It's not part of my passage but I have to just mention it because it is that important. Church, you you are not doing this alone. You have the spirit to help you. You have the spirit to guide you. The way of the spirit is better. The way of the spirit is stronger than anything the flesh can throw at you. But once again, that's for a future week. So I got to leave that for uh, another preacher to cover that. In our lives as Christians, believing that the good news of Jesus' death on our behalf changes everything for us, there are some things that still haven't changed. We still wrestle with this fleshly mindset. Because we do, we need to recognize and we need to resist the flesh. That's why, as Christians, we are different. Our foundation is different because the cross tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Our destination is sure because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. But our helper is also present. Come back in a future week to hear more about that.